that was a neat moment. I'll admit uh, emotions got me that day. I walked in. The fans were let in, if you recall, just to walk around. Right. And the documentary crew was following me and um, had my family with me. It didn't. It just hit me for the first time that I, all I saw was smiling faces. Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. Every couple of weeks, we like to meet and talk about what matters to you as a professional project manager. We draw on the opinions and experiences of experts in the field. We see what's worked for them and talk about lessons learned on the job. We want to help you up your game and your team's game. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are the two guys who have made it their mission to improve your game, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, we got a full house today. Two it experts. Is, it is packed in the <laughs> studio, and the amount of expertise is starting to overflow. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's don't let it overwhelm us, okay? Let's meet these two guys here. First... We've got one Bill in the room all the time, but let's meet the other Bill in the room today. Bill Darden is the president and CEO of Darden & Company, LLC, a full-service project management firm. Its focus is on the development, design, construction, and tenant improvements for a variety of real estate projects. Darden's recent big project was the construction of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, the home of the Atlanta Falcons. Also with us is Matt Dale, Vice President of Darden & Company, working especially on the construction of the Home Depot backyard. Guys, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Now, there are a lot of things we want to cover on this podcast in a short time that we have. Let's talk first about this latest project, the Home Depot backyard. We're talking about 11 acres of green space adjacent to the stadium for gathering and tailgating. Matt, let's start with you. What's the vision for this space? Yeah, so since starting uh, on the project of Mercedes-Benz Stadium and joining the team back in 2013, uh, even early renderings and early planning included uh, a green space and a community asset uh, where the backyard is currently being constructed. So Arthur's original vision was not only to have a collegiate and, and uh, uh, you know, atmosphere of, of just camaraderie and tailgating where the, where the backyard will now stand, but more importantly... Uh, was to have a community asset and several amenities that the West Side could utilize uh, on non-event days. And that's, you know, 300 days a year where they'll be able to go over there, have uh, yoga, playgrounds, uh, picnics, farmer's markets, um, arts festivals, you name it. They've got a whole team uh, all working together to try to create a vision. And that has always been Arthur's vision is giving back to the West Side. So have you already contracted uh, with different groups uh, besides those on game days? Uh, on, on almost a daily basis, we have a tour of a different group, be it a concert, um, a yoga group, a, a nonprofit, um, anything that's a, a charity fundraiser, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's constant. They're, they're like Piedmont Park West. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Who is going to manage that? Like who do you hand this over to once you guys are – have completed the project. Very similar to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, we'll hand it over to AMB Sports and Entertainment, um, and they operate the backyard. While uh, Georgia World Congress Center owns the land, it's very similar setup in the uh, in the stadium as it is in the backyard, in that they'll completely operate it and book events uh, through their group. And then Matt, was this is this going right on top of where the Georgia Dome was before? Yeah, it's been a it's been a really unique project in that in that regard. Uh, the Georgia Dome was right on top of this space, um, 
you know, engaging using all 11 acres uh, in which we, you guys remember, probably we imploded it in November of I last year. That. The and video of that is spectacular, and the Marta bus pulling in front <laughs> is even more bus. spectacular. <laughs> yeah. If if yeah. you haven't seen it, what are the uh, chances? To our <laughs> listeners, go uh, YouTube that; it's well worth seeing. Yeah. I actually saw art the other day that a man created the before, the Marta bus, and the after oh, how funny. in three frames. I'm, I'm trying to get awesome. my hands on it. That's outstanding. <laughs> and you've actually got pieces of the Georgia Dome underneath this space. That's right. So we only had three months to crush it uh, into six-inch material or smaller, and we crushed it. And it, it takes up the first 14 feet uh, from the old dome slab to where our new material starts today that becomes fields and parking and, and pathways and everything else. And the implosion was your responsibility? Uh, I helped oversee it for Darden and Company with, a, of course, a huge team of engineers and consultants and experts and um, but it was, uh, I was primary over, over it from, uh, Darden's perspective. And, um, it was, uh, it was a unique project I was proud to be a part of, um, certainly from my experience, but, uh, most of the team members as well. I'm kind of fascinated by this and Bill, did Darden and company have specific experience in demolition leading up to this, or was this something new that you, you took on? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, if I, in retrospect, looking back on it, I I, uh, I hadn't. Uh, I don't think anyone had any idea how complicated it would be mm. to take the dome down. It it had um, what everybody knows as the ring beam, which was a very interesting part of the Georgia Dome structure that puzzled a lot of the people in terms of how could you. In fact, there was a there were there were two different firms, one that said they didn't believe it could implode it, and one that said it absolutely could be imploded. Mm-hmm. So we had to get a third party to come Dueling in and, and sort of say, hey, you know, it, we would like to implode it, but... Well, and, and they came back and said, we believe that they that it can. They showed the, the proof. But it was uh, about a year or more in planning before mm-hmm. someone could actually hit the button uh, to take it down, it is not just go in and, and put some uh, some dynamite in the right places, right. and drop yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. We started our engineering studies in September of uh, 16, and it came down in November of 17. Right. Well, I imagine it's fairly easy to bring it down. It's just hard to bring it down safely without yeah. impacting the rest of Atlanta <laughs> and surrounding uh, homes 50, and everything. Fifty feet from Mercedes-Benz Stadium, yes. so we had a careful asset next door that had only yeah. been open a couple months. And even then, wind, rain. Um, the day of the event, you just have to cross your fingers. You have to close the roads, and then you know, as you know, a little bit of it didn't come yeah, down. Yeah, that small section yeah, that just was, stood. That was, that was a real highlight. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all that people showed on the news. You know? right, right. Of course, that was hard to describe. That ring beam that Bill described was the important part. Once that was down, an extra wall was, was right. No sweat. Mm-hmm. What's more fun, tearing something down like that, or building something up? Building. <laughs> Absolutely building. Yeah, that was the one of the milestones I looked forward to was when we went from destruction to construction okay. in February. All right, let's talk about the project a, a little bit. Just what was involved? Um, obviously, lots of things involved in in um, getting people together. Uh, this is a major project, and probably most of our listeners have never encountered something like this before. Uh, what's what are some of the uh, things that are involved in, in putting this together? Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, the um, you know early in the design process, Arthur's vision uh, was that this needed to be a community asset, and um, to to accomplish that, we engaged a large design team, not only our own partners, uh, Kimley Horn, TVS Design, and several sub consultants, 
Um, but also AMB Foundation was engaged um, to establish the parks program. And also to do that, they involved some other third-party consultants with some international uh, recognition, uh, uh, projects for public spaces, uh, BRV, um, several of those are from New York and from London and from other parts of the country. Um, They all have expertise in not only park design and operation, but they were responsible for going out to the community and getting their feedback in exactly what amenities uh, they were interested in or what could help, you know, uh, revitalize or, or give them something to, uh, as a new asset to the community. And so um, we, um, we engaged those firms. They, they came up with some great ideas, uh, anything from shade structures to uh, types mm-hmm. of pavement, types of playground, um, different furniture. And, and what we have today now is a combination of pedestrian bridges uh, a, a what we call a destination playground, a massive structure that you know anyone, not only from the West Side neighborhoods, but anywhere in town would want to come take their kids of all ages, anywhere from two to twelve is really what we what we targeted. Hmm. Uh, but um, different, we've got the Home Depot sponsor zone that includes um, different ways to activate during event days, but also non-event days, picnic tables. Uh, cafe tables. Um, you guys have obviously heard about the soccer ball as well. You know, 35 foot um, stainless steel ball uh, <laughs> from a, an artist engaged out of the UK. Um, and um, between its lighting effects and its just sheer scale, uh, we're excited for that to be yet another community asset for people to get excited about. So you mentioned Arthur earlier, and for those listeners all over the world who may not have been to Atlanta or may not be on a first-name basis with him, uh, who is this? So Arthur Blank uh, is the owner of not only the Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United, uh, AMB Sports and Entertainment, all AMB, Arthur M. Blank, uh, family of businesses, include others as uh, PGA Superstore, uh, Mountain Sky Ranch, and um, he's just an incredible benefactor to the community. Let's just back up a little bit, you know, just to, to give him his, his due. I mean, he is, you know, one of the two co-founders of, of the Home, Home Depot. Which right, is Bernie Marcus and Arthur And Blank. Bernie had that vision, and uh, it's an incredible story. Worth, and, I mean, it's worth a read for Built from Scratch is one of their, you know, one of the most famous books that built, uh, written for business. But, you know, Arthur's been a, a client on uh, this was the 25th thing that we've done for him since he uh, retired, quote unquote, <laughs> from Home, Home Depot. Um, he uh, he is a visionary. He is uh, a, what you see on TV. A lot of people ask me all the time, "Is it for real?" I mean, is that who you're? And I'm like, yeah. He he really means it when he's he's fan centric. When he cares about the fan experience, he uh, the food price thing that was absolutely. Uh, uh, he was as determined to get that right and make sure that the fans came and played street prices. That's that's changed the entire mm-hmm. food and beverage. Uh, I just saw Rich McKay do a little talk on it on the one of the preseason games the other night, and it's 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 unbelievable what something like that. And that was you know him saying, "I'm doing okay on the rest of it. Let's give back yet another way." Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted something iconic, um, something that wouldn't. It was a, a first. We can talk about that maybe later in the, the question and answer. But um, he's just a very special, unique individual, and, and Atlanta is very, very lucky to have someone like that living here. Okay, let's talk more about Mercedes-Benz Stadium right now. A few statistics, first of all. It opened in August of 2017. It's got 71,000 seats, 7,600 club seats, 
190 suites, 24 bars and restaurants, and I love this stat, 1,264 beer taps. The Georgia Dome, I understand, had 30, right? That's right. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. And, and the cost, $1.5 billion. It just recently hosted the 2018 Major League Soccer All-Star Game and will host the 2019 NFL Super Bowl. And this is the part I love. The stadium is green to the core. The Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEAD, is the rating system for green buildings. And Mercedes-Benz Stadium has the highest rating of any sports venue in the world and has the distinction of being the first professional sports stadium in the U.S. to get the LEAD Platinum certification. Here's just one example. The renewable energy generated through the stadium's 4,000 solar PV panels can power 10 Atlanta Falcon football games or 14 Atlanta United soccer matches. Bill, tell us what this lead rating means and how did you guys achieve it? Well, I'll tell you, it, it goes back even, uh, it goes back 17 years ago. Arthur took something out of a magazine that referred to lead, sent it over to me on the very first project I ever did from him. I'd never even heard of it. And he said, hey, can you look into this? He's a very, very a uh, strongly committed person to the environment among four or five other things in his life. And he said, look into this. And I'm like, okay. So I thought it would be easy. And at the fa- <laughs> at the time, uh, there were 12 lead buildings in the world, 10 in the United States and two over in Europe. And I had to call uh, out to Washington State to find the, a guy who actually really understood what lead was. The U.S. Green Building Council out of Washington, D.C., oversees it, but just very few people even knew in any event how to orchestrate it. And at the time, it was uh, like the Olympics. You had bronze, silver, gold. There wasn't, I don't believe, platinum at the time. Um, And so Arthur, the building that we ultimately built for him, um, uh, which, you know, he was a pioneer, and uh, he ended up having the first gold lead building on the east coast of the United States. Um, He took that as a platform uh, to espouse that to other developers and builders. And then, of course, lead caught on like wildfire, which has been wonderful, wonderful. For the, you know, and then they've since gotten rid of the bronze. It's just lead as their initial. Then they go to silver, then they go to gold, and, and then to platinum. And platinum is, uh, I don't know the exact number, there are very few platinum buildings, period. No sports arena mm-hmm. that, are, that have been platinum. I, I would guess that there are very few that are gold, and most that aren't anything, you know, are not lead at all. So, among, uh, we'll talk about the, we have what we call a list of firsts. And that just simply means that we took on a lot of challenges in the stadium, lead platinum being one of them. What's the, you know, it's the first one ever done the roof the way it is, the first one ever done, and on and on. And I think we have about 20, 25 major items. It's the first thing, uh, first time something uh, on the stadium has been attempted. The The platinum lead was um, sort of an amazing process. We kept waiting for them to come back and say, well, you can't quite get these few points. You know, prepare for gold, prepare for gold. And through a truly a team, well-managed, orchestrated, event um we never drop below the line ever of points necessary to get lead uh, now you know it it did it's not free 
you know, you do have to do that, but you have to pay for that. But it is, it is not as expensive as you might think if you plan it from day one. If that's your goal, you can you can get a lot of economies in that. That's and such a key. That statement you just made is so important. If you plan it from day one, I look at the constraints that you guys dealt with as you built this stadium. And knowing, I didn't know until I read read this, I didn't realize that that was a goal, was lead, much less platinum. And for, so to think about that as a constraint as you were walking into this project is amazing. So to, to think about the planning that you guys had to instill right from the start, were there other constraints like that that you thought you from the very beginning you had to plan with those in mind, obstacles that you knew you'd have to overcome? You know, I tell you, the way these things work, you just you sit down and the, the architect creates, you know, the an initial vision. We interviewed, I think, nine major world-class architects and uh, to shortlist it down to three and then and and then they they come up with what they come up with um and and then you start looking at it at first it looks on paper you know when it's in uh conceptual drawings you know you sit there and look at it and go okay that's really cool looking and then and then that's when the work really starts hmm. uh, and so you you the question you ask is you sort of um, you find those things out along the way. Um, uh, in this case, um, you know, multiple, multiple things. Uh, you come along. We have two structural systems. You know, we have the concrete bowl, and that was the dominant feature for a while. And then, of course, to that, we have these very unique, one of a kind, 19 mega columns that almost 30,000 tons of steel uh, sits on top of. Think about that. No columns to support. It's all cantilevered out over the building with a mechanized roof right in the middle of it. Where were those manufactured? The 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 mega columns are actually poured in place concrete, and they are you could you know fit on the largest ones you could probably fit I don't know side by side a hundred people. Uh, in it, uh, good place for Jimmy Hoffa back in the day. <laughs> one that, but uh, there, if you walk around the stadium, you just sit there and look up and and see these massive, you know, uh, pieces of steel that are sitting on top of these mega columns, and that whole roof structure sits all the way to that roof is carried down through those mega columns. So those, that's that in itself is completely unique. And then you've got an entire new skin system that's attached to that, which you know, you know, just to can't remember how many tons it is. I don't know if you remember offhand. Just oh, the, the skin alone? Just the skin alone. Oh but gosh, it was, I... you know, thousands of tons in and of itself comprising glass and then this new product that we had not used. It's not widely used in the United States called ETFE, uh, which is very strong, very durable, about the size of your fingernail. Hmm. Um, 1% the weight of glass. 1% the weight of glass, yeah. So, man, I see you shaking your head there. Was that uh, just what, amazement of the material or the difficulty of working with well, it? Well, what's running through my head is to the question you just asked was, where was that made? And I think where, where Bill was probably going next is is how many uh, plants and locations we had to engage mm. to fabricate the steel. Mm. And, uh, right. you know, we started you know, at a process where we thought four to five, uh, maybe one international uh, plant could do it. Um, and we ended up with, I think, 33 total <laughs> wow. because of the capacity. I mean, just the, the total bandwidth that it yeah. took to get this steel here on time. And not only to be 
deadly accurate as they line up across the top of the roof. And I remember, Bill, you and I were talking early on and part of the Atlanta area, the community, they were celebrating an announcement that SunTrust Park was going in, the Mm -hmm. baseball stadium. And you were looking at that as, okay, here's another obstacle that I have to overcome. Yeah, I mean, the, if you're if you're you know thinking about project management is um, uh, it is as you know you you're there to manage a group of people. People ask us all the time, "What do you do?" And you know they they get very confused between us. They say, "Do you so you built the stadium?" I'm like, "No." Um, <laughs> so you drew the stadium? No. Um, and you know, just a simple hierarchy. You know, you have the Falcons, and then we're right underneath them, and then everybody else flows up through us. And so um, think about that. I don't know of any city that's ever attempted to do two stadiums at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine the, uh, the vortex uh, it, it, of, of workers it took to do the two stadiums. Mm-hmm. Now think about the people trying to build a hotel or an office building or even a, a house out in the suburbs. Right. Get in line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get in yeah. line. Yeah. And, and everybody firsthand. wanted to work sure. on the stadium. Uh particularly at the labor level, they wanted to be able to walk around. It was a big source of pride uh, when we walk out in the field with Arthur. I mean, it was just incredible. The people that would come over, they wanted to shake his hand. He took a lot of time to stop and say thank you because he'd get out there and see the mass of humanity. We had mm. 2,500 people at our peak out there in the field working on it, another 200, 250 sitting and so supposed white-collar uh, jobs right next door in a, in a trailer farm. And then you've got the whole Falcons organization in addition to that, um, you know, and, and people like, you know, Arthur Blank, and then you have Rich McKay, who's a president CEO, and then, and then along the way, uh, Greg Beadle's huge, huge piece of this, our chief financial officer and new chief operating officer uh, just as of this year. And then along the way, Arthur wanted to, sort of stepped back a little bit, and right after he cut the Mercedes-Benz deal, he got acquainted with Steve Cannon, and Steve Cannon is now uh, chairman and C, or, or I'm sorry, CEO of AMBSE, and and that allows Arthur to pull back and work more on, on philanthropic things and whatnot. So, Bill, I've got a question. Don't let this go to your head. I'm really sitting here talking with you, and I'm curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering the same thing. How do you get to the point where you're suddenly managing the construction of the coolest stadium in the country? Uh, I mean, what what is the short version of the trajectory of your career? What's your background? What did you study? To uh, Because that's a bigger project than most people will ever manage. Now you're on first name basis with a billionaire and you're getting to fly around and interview architects, world-class architects. How, how does this happen? Give me a short version of that. <laughs> Well, interesting, Mike. My, my whole career has been a series of building blocks, and I look back on it, and I used to wonder why when I'd, I'd have tribulations in my career, and I'd go, God, I just don't understand why I'm having to go through this. But when I retrospectively look back, um, it's just really easy for me to see that I was being essentially prepared for, for something this grand. Mm-hmm. And and that's just, you know, you call it fate, you call that a blessing, you can call that uh, someone's you know, God's intervention. You can call it whatever, however you see it. I prefer the latter. I do believe that's really what it was. I do believe I essentially Arthur's not the first billionaire I actually worked for. He's the third, and most people don't even know one. You know, just right place, right time, and, and circumstances being what they are. 
Um, I will tell you uh, what might be of interest to to a lot of project managers is uh, a gentleman who taught me this business uh, early on in my you know early to uh, or mid twenties to late twenties. I probably send him four or five notes a year thanking him for the building blocks that he gave me on core project management, budget, schedule, quality, and the one that I think got left out 20, 30 years ago that now is at the forefront is safety. Hmm. You know, we used to just, that used to be something that people, you know, paid lip service to. Now it's the first thing that we talk about and the other three, you know, come along with it. But those four form the the legs of the stool that, frankly, every project is built on. The fact that makes this different, and it is different, there's a lot of zeros behind the number, you know, one you know, one or two more than you normally work on, uh, <laughs> maybe three or four for most. <laughs> and so um, I think I, I had it. I talked to a gentleman when I was putting the team together, my team, to do this, and uh, he was an experienced guy, and I was trying to decide – uh, you know, it's going to sound a little odd. I was trying to decide young or old. You might say, what does that mean? Well, um, I was trying to get, do I want to go with experienced, more, you know, a little more gray hair like myself, or do I want to go with with youth and vigor and, and whatnot? And so this one guy I really thought was a slam dunk to join join me. I told him about it, and he uh, called me back the next day. He goes, and this is a great guy. He is a great guy and and I, and would have been a wonderful part of the team. But he said, Bill, this is just uh, this is just over over my head, sort of your point, hmm. you know. And I and my response to that is, I said, "Well, whose head isn't this over?" Right. <laughs> and I said, in all candor, I said, "There is nobody I can call that could give me a comparable." Uh, there's, I mean, you know, Dallas Stadium was unique. We we visited a lot out there. We visited New York Stadium. Uh, it was unique, um, but you know. These one-of-a-kind facilities. And so you really go back, and I said, after that phone call and listening to that, I said, I, it really made my choice very I, – I went out and sought out, um, I'll just call the smartest, most well-thought-of individuals that I could find. Uh, and I said, I'll provide the gray hair. They'll provide the energy. Mm-hmm. And so we met, that, that, I'll tell you, when we got into the last six to eight months, we were working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, sleeping, you know, with our phones, really most of the project, but certainly in that last year, um, their energy invigorated me and hopefully my experience helped guide them. We had to change entire management philosophy. At least I did. I used to, uh, you know, it's when you hire really good people, it's like a, a, a jockey on a horse, you know, when they're getting the home stretch, you can you watch the jockeys. They won't. They don't do too much until the end, and they start to really sort of. Then you start whipping them. Yeah, crack the whip. <laughs> but this project didn't allow for that, and I had to adjust personally and our our corporate philosophy. We I said these guys, everybody in the field, all twenty five hundred, so uh, many hours and so much dedication, they were burnt out and tired, and um, and we're like, how do we get them across the finish line? And it came with a much higher dose of carrot than stick and mm-hmm. walking around and saying, what can I do for you today? And what, how, what runway can I clear for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but I will take it right back to, the, to one simple common denominator. If you get off on any project, if you try and get off on the right foot and you have a good team 
I taught briefly at Georgia Tech, you know, uh, to a senior project management class. And I told them, I said, the single most important thing you can do when you get in your position as a project manager is hire the right team. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't uh, – that and then focusing on, on those fundamentals of safety, schedule, budget, um, and, and quality, and all those things tie together. And if one of them gets out of sync – uh, everything tends to get, you know, yeah. sideways. That stool, that table starts to wobble. Yeah. How, I want to ask you guys a personal question, both of you, because this was an intensely um, – the pressure with this stadium was just unlike anything. I just – when I'd read about it or when Bill and I would talk, I just would cringe thinking of the pressure you guys are feeling. How did you personally – you know, you've talked about how you tried to coach the, the team through it. How did you personally deal with stress? I know every now and then Bill tried to sneak off to a golf course, but I know that didn't happen very often. How do you guys deal with – how did you all deal with the stress during that I'll time? let Matt answer, and I'll be interested to see what he says. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I think I, I came with uh, with no gray hairs in my head, and now I'm about 25%. So, um, you know, it's, it's this is actually something I, I wanted to mention in terms of the lessons I learned. Um, taking ownership in your work as a project manager is such an important part to making a successful project. And by having ownership in everything you touched, um, we as a team, uh, it, it, you didn't want it to fail. And whether you were losing sleep over it or you worked late on it, you had so much pride in it that you may have been working hard, but there was so much gratification that came from it. Um, but you also knew a five-year project or five plus, but I, I've almost, eight years for me. Yeah. Almost. Five years really since the design team came on board and the contractor came on board and, and we got to the finish line. When you started to see that light at the end of the tunnel um, and, and what was going to be enjoyed by the community and the fans, it made it hundred percent worth it. Mm-hmm. And it, and it pulled that stress back. So Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little more because um, that sounds great to take ownership of your work and take pride in it and so forth and keep your eye on the prize. I, I do that, but here's the result it has with me is it makes me internalize stress a lot more. Um, I probably internalize stress more than the average person, which in some ways makes me a great PM. Um, it's also probably going to shorten my life if I'm not careful with it. Um, how does that resonate with you? Are you basically able to let it go when you go home? No. In fact, I, I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm as guilty of it as it sounds like you are, is that I can't turn it off. Okay. Whether, whether 5.30, 6, 7, yep. 8 o'clock hits and I need to go home to family, it, you can't turn it off. If anything, you can pause and try to, you know, get through and make sure, you know, everything's good on the homestead. Uh, it, it's hard to, hard to just shut it down. And well, um, to that, to that point, I think, um, communication, you say, well, communication just means you're talking to your people. No. Communication means, um, let's think about it. We had to communicate very, very, very honestly, directly, and and diligently with our owner, with our client. Mm-hmm. They needed to know where we were hurting. It helped them help us when we were honest with them and said, listen, we're, uh, uh, you know, I, I won't say with who, uh, but I had a very personal conversation on a down day for me uh, with uh, with a senior person uh, at uh, at Arthur's company, and he you know, he, he knew, he could tell I was really feeling it and uh, the weight of it. And it, and he just, he gave me an experience that he'd had in life 
uh, back earlier in his life that helped him realize. He said, Bill, you've got another gear. You just have to realize, you know, this will help you realize that. and It will benefit you the rest of your life. Now, I'm on the back side of my career. These young guys are on the front side. So I, I in turn, took that lesson, tried to impart it to them. If you if you want to go to the personal side of, of it and switch all the way from, from the client to the very personal, if you don't go home and tell your your whatever, your husband, your wife, your significant other, your your even your your general family or your friends that are you have to say, I'm in the middle of a of a of the most pressure packed thing. And I I found that in doing that, because what you just said when you said that a minute ago, it sounded like me talking. Those are exactly the words I would have used about the way I I do. I do think it'll probably shorten my life. I mean, uh, and some people might say, God, don't you have regrets over that? No, I, I don't. I mean, we we don't. You don't necessarily choose your lot in life, and um, but you have to go home and tell them. And what here's what I found is that because I was honest with them and told them what was coming. And then when I was in the middle of it, would share some of what I was going through. Right. They rallied around me. Right. And so that helped me. And they'd come in and they'd go, man, you're building the coolest thing. <laughs> and, and they were enamored with the outside. They didn't know, need to know the details. To Matt's point, that helped me go, yeah, this is really pretty unique. Because when you're in the forest, the trees, you know that saying. Mm-hmm. And so it was neat to hear people say, you know how excited we are? I hate to say this way, to know somebody so actively involved, (laughs) to be having uh, up here having dinner with someone who's in charge. You're really in charge of this? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, just regular old me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know. Well, I I recall, I remember the first time I went in the stadium for, I was for uh, Atlanta United game. And uh, I was there with my family. And I took a picture, you know, my phone and texted it to Bill. I said, check it out, man. I'm in your house. This place is awesome. So, yeah, there there is that reward at the end. But man, oh man, you know, kudos to you both for finding some way to stay sane through the whole thing. No, no project manager should ever, in my opinion, be. You know, we all handle pressure differently. Um, but I will tell you, I've only met in my entire almost forty-one year career, I've only met one guy that sort of had a what I'll call a passive. Type B personality who did not seem to be bothered by anything. He was very low key. Who was massively successful. Mm. Right, right. This That's business and just sort of requires and calls for that. Don't let it go when you go home and sort of stay with it. What you hope to do, and what I watch some of the longer term folks do in between project is when they try and make up for some of that. Um, you know, uh, difficulty and, and stress during the project. They try and catch a little little breath. And then uh, you have to like what you do. Hmm. And uh, it is it is fun to watch one of these things go up, even while the stress is there. When you walk out and you say, hey, they're putting the first piece of metal panel on. When I go out, to, when we got to go out and all sign the last piece of steel erected, that was a neat moment. And then jumping way ahead, when you talked about walking in the stadium, I'll admit uh, emotions got me that day. I walked in. The, the fans were let in, if you recall, just to walk around. Right. And the documentary crew was following me and um, had my family with me. It didn't. It just hit me for the first time that I, all I saw was smiling faces. And mm-hmm. I went, 
Yeah, that's why we did this. Maybe that added a year back on. <laughs> I do. I like the way. I like that's a good way of putting it. It, it. I will tell you, I had to turn the camera crew away and say, "Can you give me a moment?" Because it was really emotional. Yeah. I, I think a, another important point is that not every project that everyone's going to manage has the opportunity to have seventy thousand people walk in and say, "Way to go!" or yeah, right. "Thanks for doing this." And they're and, all stakeholders. Right, yes. right, and mm-hmm. and you're gonna, you know, people are out there. They're gonna build a warehouse. They're gonna build a data center or an office or who knows what, you know. And um, I think one thing to take a, uh, you know, something out of Bill's book that I constantly keep in mind that ought to be written on your wall uh, is to work smart hmm. and not not just work hard, but work smart. And working 120 hours a week and neglecting all those other aspects of your life is not the healthy way to do it. Right. But, you know, ask yourself, is clearing my inbox or is, you know, looking at this change order or reviewing schedule or whatever, is this a smart uh, task that's going to benefit the project immediately? And and think about what you're doing and what's the right thing to delegate, but also the right thing to do yourself and what's going to make a real difference. And And I think by doing that, you can figure out a way to balance working 120 hours a week versus unfortunately 80 in our case for this project, but somewhere somewhere much more reasonable. With all this in mind, could all of this have been anticipated or, or were there any surprises uh, along the way in this project? <laughs> uh, uh, no, you can't anticipate, uh, probably on any project, but on one with this, this large, there's no way to anticipate everything you're going to encounter. Um, and that goes a little bit back to your question about stress. And, and so, because... Here's you might on a on a I'll just say let's take a maybe a two hundred million dollar fifty story high rise you know a tough project but I'd say on that you'd walk in and once a week you get a oh my goodness this is going to really be a tough one to solve mm-hmm. on this we had those on a daily basis mm-hmm. the project isn't going to make it the project's going to go you know the cost is going to be this and so you just had to say well I'm, if I'm going to let this get to me every day. Uh, I'll never survive it. So you have to come in and say, all right, fine. Get the right people in the room. Get the, and they're all very smart people working on this, just multi-talented people. Could not give them enough credit. Um, you'd sit down with them and go, all right, what caused this? What are we going to do to get around it? And when you give people opportunity to think and speak their mind, I remember walking to one meeting and the steel erector and the steel designer and steel manufacturer we're just, I sat there and listened to them. And it was unbelievable. These are all really talented people, but under a lot of pressure, and they were really tired physically, emotionally tired. I said, Time out, stop. Just stop. Um, all right, I'm going to officiate this. I'm going to tell you each when you can talk. And when you talk, you have the floor, and you two other listen. And then we're going to stop when I give you the cue, and I don't want another word until that person is finished. I did that for about 40 minutes, and all of a sudden, you could see every one of their light bulbs turned on, and they were talking all around and all, but not connecting. And all of a sudden, they just, the pressure dropped, everything, you know, the stars aligned. They go, so all you need is for this. And the person said, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. And there goes, well, if we do this, and then, and then I just sort of pulled back, and then I heard this guy under his breath. Lean over to a guy 
And I said, why haven't we been doing this <laughs> for the last year? Well, and you made it look easy is the, yeah. is the point. Well, yeah. you, you know, at the end of the day, if you think about it, I go back to communication. They all laugh at me because I always tell them, over-communicate. Right. Uh, I honestly don't get the – you'll ask someone a question. It's usually the third, fourth, sometimes fifth time I ask the same question, I get the honest answer. And then you go, wow, okay. And then someone says, well, I didn't know that. And then all of a sudden you're off to the races to the correct place. So was there anything that you would have done differently now, looking back over the past five-plus years uh, in retrospect? It's boring. One of the things I'll tell you, I can't get anybody to publish it, so at least I can say it here. Maybe you guys will actually think about this. If I ask you guys, you know, you go in and you're going to go do a new um, – uh, it could be your house for that matter, right? But certainly, let's just take it to a larger scale. You know, the normal course of events is that you go in and you interview architects. Okay, so who's going to show up? Well, the head designer f- chosen for this is going to show up and he's going to have all or she's going to have all the pretty pictures and they're going to wow you and they're going to woo you because we have a lot of talented architects in the world and, a l- and, and frankly, most of them dominant in the United States. Just fabulous designers. And that is the normal way. And I've seen that done most of my career. I would not do that on something like this again. I would reverse it. And I don't know if people would ever have the discipline to do this. I would flip it around and go, I'll get to that. But I want all of you to come in and I want you to introduce me to your management team. And I want you to tell me who is going to manage the every day. Who are we going to be in the trenches with? Who are we going to fight uh battles with? Who are we going to have to work together in a concerted manner with a contractor? I want to know who your management team is. And they, of course, would sit back and go, well, well, what if we have a good manager, uh, but we don't uh, win the day on the design? I'm like, well, then we'll do what a lot of people do. I'll marry you up with them hmm. or vice versa. You know, what if someone comes in and blows us away with the design, but do we ever, do we lose? No. I'll, if I... In a perfect world, you'd hope that the that the best design would be with the best manager. Candidly, I doubt it would often be the case. And mm-hmm. and that comes down not to just uh, a philosophy of a company. It comes down to the person and the people supporting that person. I'd want to grind in that detail and ask them minutiae questions and down to how their style of management, philosophy, how they get along with contractors, uh, how they manage subconsultants. How are they going to manage political issues? Because here's what's going to try and win the day. The guys who are doing the design, you know, because that's what everybody sees and touches, they're going to want to control that. I'm going, how are you going to push back when what you know they're designing is not in budget? How are you going to do that? I want to hear you articulate that for me. I would grind on that. That's That's one thing I would do dramatically different if someone asked me to do one of these again or something uh, of a high-end nature. You know, back in the 80s, Peter Lynch was one of the most famous money managers uh, in the world. And he wrote some great books. And he wrote one that stuck with me called Beat the Street. And it was talking about how he basically beat Wall Street consistently. One of the things he would do uh, when he was managing this enormous fund called Fidelity Magellan, he would go buy whole companies 
But before he would buy them, he would sit down and get to know the management team. He was far more interested in that than how much money they were making or whether they were in some hot industry that was taking off. He wanted to know who was running it. And I always found that to be fascinating. And he talked one time about buying the Pet Boys Company. And he said, what can be more boring than Manny, <laughs> Moe, and Jack than the auto parts? And yet he made a fortune off of that one thing because he loved the management team. It's just an interesting parallel as you say that. I think something that Bill's also taught me on this project is that regardless of the scale, and at first I thought, okay, this is a world-class project. Uh, you know, we we need world-class team members, and we don't have time for B players and C players. And um, – you know, I learned through Bill and, and watched it firsthand that if, if we had somebody that slowed us down, um, we, we challenged it. And then it made me realize as we did other projects, the, um, the Atlanta United training ground and others that applies to any project Mm -hmm. that you need to, you need to challenge everything. And especially the team and their dedication their, and their, uh, expertise and, and the way they're managed, uh, cause it can make all the difference. And they can also be that one person that, that, you know, brings the project down. Well, Matt and Bill, we appreciate so much your taking time to share your expertise with us. This has been an eye-opening conversation for all of us and hopefully for our listeners as well. We've got a gift for you right here, this Manage This Coffee Mug. It's our way of showing our appreciation for your time with us today. We, our, re- we really appreciate it. Thank pleasure. you for having us. Thank pleasure. you. Guys, before you go, can you tell us how we can get in touch with you? Sure. I think the easiest thing, just go to our website, uh, darningcompany.com, and uh, it, it has our bios on it and everything about uh, the stadium and all our other projects. So uh, that's, that's kind of you to even to bring that up. So thanks. A word to our listeners now. You've been helping us out by telling us what you'd like to hear on Manage This. Keep it up. Send your questions. What kind of guests you'd like to hear from? What do you want to ask them? The best place to do that is the Velociteach Facebook page. Just use the comments section. And did you know that you just earned some PDUs, professional development units, just for listening to this podcast? To claim your free PDUs for your recertifications, go to Velociteach.com and choose Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in next time for our next podcast. In the meantime, you can visit us at velocityteach.com slash manage this to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. We are here for you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.